Magazines and Monsters, episode 46, Revenge of Frankenstein, from 1958. In the year 1860, I, Baron Frankenstein, was sentenced to death on the guillotine. Why? Why had the world condemned me? Because I was the first man to create another living being. The first unnatural man. But because his brain was affected, because he could not control his animal instincts, he was hunted down and brutally murdered. But I have escaped the guillotine, and I shall avenge the death of my creation. You will witness scenes never before seen on a motion picture screen. You will see Frankenstein take the eyes of one man, the brain of another. You will see lifeless hands begin to move. You will see a man turn into the world's most terrifying monster. Hey everybody, Billy D, aka Doc Strange here, back with another episode of the show and another movie discussion. And uh, it's a part two or a uh, you know sequel, the first sequel in the uh, Hammer Frankenstein uh, franchise or series of films with me. So that means my buddy Mike from Comics in the Golden Age is here with me. How are you, buddy? I'm doing really good. How about you, man? Oh, fantastic. Um, looking forward to the week being over for work and then one more week and vacation. So, you know, you already get in that vacation mode where you're just like, can I just like sleepwalk through the next week of work? <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, man, we're we talked about if anybody didn't listen to it yet, stop right now. Go back and listen to the first movie. You know, we talked about 1957's uh, Curse of Frankenstein. We had a good time with that one. You know, it's a pretty big landmark film. It was really Hammer's first, you know you know, horror movie, you know, concrete horror movie, not a sci-fi or anything like that. So go back and listen to our discussion on that and then uh, join uh, this one again. And uh, Revenge of Frankenstein from 1958, the very next year, you know, they already uh, spun out uh, the first sequel. So pretty quick uh, time, you know, to get one out there one year later, only you don't see that very often. But, you know, Hammer was no slouch at getting the films out quickly. And especially if they saw something was a success, they were going to uh, milk it. Oh, yeah, they were definitely not ones to waste time or, you know, it was all about cranking out those sequels for them. Yeah, and I think I read, too, they started <laughs> uh, filming on this one only three days after they wrapped Horror of Dracula <laughs> from 1958, too, which is insane. Like, 
because a lot of the same people worked on that movie and this movie, especially behind the scenes. So that's crazy. You got three days off and okay, another movie. Let's go. Let's start cranking it out. That's wild. And didn't they use a lot of the same sets as well? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? It's very familiar. (laughs) Yeah, it's wild to me. Like, I just think to myself, man, three days? Like, I can't think of any studios or, you know, actors that are like, oh, yeah, I wrapped one movie and, you know, I had three days off. It's like more like three months probably nowadays till you'd start another one. Especially because right around this time period, and I don't know exactly the timeline, but Mm -hmm. they were also developing a frankenstein tv series for american television mm-hmm. i think they were working with an american company and yeah i don't know the exact timeline but if i remember right i think that pilot finished right as this movie was getting released so there had to be some overlap if not in filming at least in writing or other development and stuff like that so they definitely you know <laughs> they were good at multitasking yeah, and speaking of release, I think this was released in the United States before it was released in the UK, which blows my mind. But I think I actually read that somewhere, and I was just like, what? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, what's going on here? I didn't know it, but on the other hand, I guess I never really, I guess I would just always assume all these films came out there. It didn't occur to me they might have released something here first. Yeah, it's bizarre to me. I'm just like, what? But, you know, as you and I talked off mic for a minute, uh, there was sometimes, you know, some uh, American, you know, money and backers uh, behind some of these films uh, as well. So when you think about it that way, you think, okay, you know, if two-thirds of the cash coming in to make this film was from the United States, maybe that was part of the deal that they wanted it over here first and then, you know, two, three months later over there. Well, I'm glad they got the money because one of the things I like about them is just how beautiful the films look. Mm, I think yeah. Stuff, coloring all of it. So uh, anything to help that budget, I'm all for it. Yeah, for real. So, yeah, we got a lot of the same uh, people returning here. And, you know, we can go through the list here. We got director Terrence Fisher, who's, you know, he's basically Mr. Hammer to me. It's all the big films and the really good ones. They were mostly Terrence Fisher films when I think of all the good ones. So, you know, he's just he's the man for me. And then uh, written by Jimmy Sangster, which (laughs) I think I also read somewhere, too, that (laughs) when uh, they were talking about, you know, making this film after the success of the first Frankenstein film that, uh, uh, Jimmy Sankster was told by uh, the, you know, the the big wigs, uh, Carreras, probably that he had six weeks to write this film. <laughs> I thought, wow, no pressure. Oh, huh? <laughs> uh, you know, th- there was in a lot of old TV and movies and shows like that. It did always there was a very assembly line vibe to a lot of it. The writers, you know, seemed to work faster, probably not healthy for them at the time. But it does sound like nowadays they tend to get a lot more time to kind of work on and develop this stuff than they did back then. Yeah, I was like, good grief, six weeks. I mean, that's just, I don't know, that's just kind of crazy for me, but that's that's wild. But hey, it, it worked, you know, for me, it worked. Um, yeah, it's, that's, that's, they got it out, you know what I mean? It was a year later, but they got it out. But yeah, a lot of the same faces, like I said, behind the scenes there. And um, of course, you know, we get uh, some familiar faces as well on the camera with, of course, our buddy Peter Cushing as a, uh, uh, not quite Dr. Frankenstein in this film, and we'll get into why that is. He's actually Dr. Victor Stein in this film. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Peter Cushing, you know, excellent as usual. He plays a very good uh, uh, evil scientist doctor, does he not? Always, although, and we'll get into this more later, but I do feel like he played it a little bit differently this time than the last one in a good way, and it worked for the for this film very well. But I do think he kind of, you know, took a slightly different approach, but we'll get to that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you know, you watch the first film, it kind of ended with, uh, 
what it looked like it was going to be the death of uh, Dr. Frankenstein, but <laughs> there's they they found a good way out of it here. You know, they they wrote their way out of it. So uh, I will uh, give them uh, props for that. I really enjoyed how they kind of got out of that. But you know, like I said again, we'll get into this here. But we also had another guy that you know he was big during this era too. You know, he was in a a few different movies. Uh, Francis Matthews. He plays a uh, Dr. Hans Kleva, who was uh, you know kind of a uh, uh, disciple here of uh, Dr. Frankenstein's, uh, Dr. Victor Stein's, I guess I should say. And uh, I thought he was pretty good too. And then, of course, it's a Hammer movie, so you have to have a uh, beautiful lady. So we have Eunice Gason as uh, Margaret Conrad. Um, so she, and again, like you were saying too about the sets, you know, the the whoever did the wardrobe, you know, for this film too, you know, she would wear these beautiful, bright, you know, turn-of-the-century-looking clothes as well, and she looked absolutely gorgeous in this film, of course. <laughs> well, I think she was a she was a Bond girl previous to this, wasn't she? Not one of the major ones, but I think she popped up in, I want to say maybe even two Bond films in kind of smaller roles, if I remember right. Yeah, I think you're correct on that one. And then uh, we got Michael Gwynn as uh, Carl, and that's uh, in his new body, we'll say, and we'll explain that in a bit. But uh, I do know... I remember him. He was in one of the uh, oh, one of those films, and I can't think of the name of it now because I always get them mixed up because there's two that came out around the same time. But he was in one where it was uh, uh, Village of the Damned. I think it's Village of the Damned because there was Village of the Damned and Children of the Damned that came out uh, very close to each other, like within two or three years of each other, I think. And I think if I remember correctly, he was like a scientist type guy that was working with the government. And I really liked him in that one. He's he's very good in this. And his, we'll have a lot to say on him because his his version of a character that appeared previously is also a very, very different approach. And mm -hmm. I, th I think we'll have a lot to say about that. Yeah. And then there were a couple of uh, Hammer uh, stalwarts in this one as well. Not very big parts, but. You know, they were there. Uh, Michael Ripper, of course, he uh, is in the beginning scene here. We won't see him after this beginning scene, but, you know, he was in this film and he was in the beginning part. And then uh, George Woodbridge as well. He's uh, he plays a smaller part as well, uh, but uh, he was in this one as well. And quite a few other Hammer films, not quite as many as Michael Ripper, because nobody was in as many <laughs> as he was. But, uh, yeah, he was in this one, too. And he was great. Uh, he, he really shined in his moment. Yeah, the only name that stuck out to me when I kind of look at, you know, either the on-screen or the behind-the-camera uh, people that stuck out, because, again, a lot of the same names. You know, you had Bernard Robinson for the set designs, Phil Leakey for makeups, Jack Asher was the cinematographer. But the music um, was a guy named Leonard Salzado, and I had never heard that name before. So that was new to me, you know, because uh, usually, you know, Hammer Films, they uh, had, uh, oh, gosh, what's his name? Uh James Bernard, he did a lot of the big ones, uh, you know, especially early on in the late 50s and early 60s. So that was a bit of a change there. And I wasn't sure why I couldn't figure out and find out why they had that other guy do it instead of him. So not sure about that one. But that was one thing of note that I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why they had him do it. You know, I hadn't even realized that until you said it. And I don't and I don't remember reading anything about him why he was there. Maybe maybe the other one was working on the TV series or something, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you never know. It's because it's sometimes it, there's not always the best records of the timing with a lot of things. So, 
you know, to try to find it and look it up and things like that. It doesn't always work as easy as you think it will, because there have been a lot of good books written about Hammer and some of them, you know, with some very good, you know, behind the scenes, uh, you know, people that have some good sources and stuff like that. But I always find that it's there, there seems to always be certain people that are like, no, that's not really how it is. This is how it is. And it always like, I think, OK, so who really knows what they're talking about here? Like, you know, unless you're. Like we're on the set yourself, which, you know, in the day and age we live, a lot of these people are not with us anymore. So you really can't, you know, there's not any way to uh, verify a lot of these things, even when you have books with really good sources. Like I said, there's a ton of them out there. Yeah, I almost and this, of course, this is speculation. God, it could be any reason. But like you mentioned earlier, this started so close to the wrapping of the Dracula movie. Uh, I almost wonder if maybe his either just his plate was too full or. He may have already had some prior commitment that he was unable to get out either, you know, professionally or personally, maybe. Because mm-hmm. if you're doing this kind of grind, it doesn't leave much time for other things. And maybe at some point he just had to do something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's kind of how it is, you know. And, hey, I don't blame anybody for working and doing a lot just to make a living because, you know, like you and I know, uh, Hammer, they put out great movies, but they were very low-budget movies. And there were, you know, a lot of people working on them. So obviously they were making a ton of money doing it. So if you wanted to make a decent living, you had to work constantly in that business, you know, just to probably just make ends meet. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, all right. Well, now that we got through those uh, things there, so why don't we, I'll just uh, rattle off like a quick, tiny little uh, plot uh, synopsis here, uh, just an IMDb kind of thing. And then you and I can just get into, uh, you know, going through the movie, uh, you and I. How about it? Okay. All right. So having escaped execution and assumed alias, Baron Frankenstein transplants his deformed underling's brain into a perfect body. But the effectiveness of the process and the secret of his identity soon begin to unravel. So (laughs) that's kind of like pretty much it. But (laughs) there's a lot more to unpack than that. Uh, So why don't we start at the beginning? So literally... You could watch the first film and this film back to back and they do, you know, the first one ends and this one starts exactly on the same scene. You know, they're they're almost seamless where, you know, the first one ended with the Baron going to the guillotine and this one starts with the Baron going to the guillotine. And I really like that scene. I mean, the film opens with, you know, you hear a church bell being like gong, gong, and then the credits roll and then we see the Baron. And there's a priest, and they're walking up to, uh, you know, the, the guillotine. Oh, poor priest. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, one I, of the things, I, I really thought this was like a perfect retcon. Or, well, maybe retcon is even an unfair way to, maybe it's not even a retcon. Because like you said, he's going up to the guillotine, and we see it fall in the end of the previous film. The implication being that they they killed Victor, but here... All they really did was insert a scene in between basically explaining that, yeah, someone someone took the guillotine, but it just was that poor priest they threw in front of Victor instead. And it was such a simple, easy, small that I think, you know, the shortness of it and how quick it just worked beautifully. It just was like, oh, well, that's satisfactory. Let's move on. Then Victor's alive. Yeah. The only difference is, you know, you now see there's another person other than the Baron and, you know, the priest and then, of course, there's, you know, the man that's going to drop the guillotine on the head. But then there's another person there. There's a fourth person there that, you know, we're kind of just like, OK, well, who was this guy? And he does share like kind of a wink and a nod with the executioner. And like you said, 
the camera pans away to the top of the guillotine where the blade is, and you kind of hear a little bit of a struggle, and then the guillotine blade falls, and they do a really good jump cut to a pub scene, which, you know, hammers films every they've all got to pretty much have a good pub scene in them and i love those scenes and it immediately jumps to that pub scene and a woman screaming you know just as in having a good time at the pub <laughs> getting a little unruly i love that scene what did you think of that transition oh it was great and i love the guys in the pub that in any of the films they always have such wonderful accents and they just exude so much character you know whether they're like a you know well, I don't want to say what these guys are yet. You can talk about it. But, you know, <laughs> the homeless drunk or whether it's the businessman who owns the pub, you know, they all just have these extreme stereotypical accents and they just exude these personalities so clearly that it's always entertaining to watch those scenes in these films. Yeah. And this is where we, you know, see enter uh, Michael Ripper. He's there with another gentleman and. Uh, they're talking uh, over a drink or a couple of drinks and uh, <laughs> they look like they're pretty much you know, half in the bag already. And <laughs> they're talking about how uh, uh, they've been doing some grave robbing. And uh, the one guy says to Ripper that, you know, hey, you know, somebody's willing to pay us 10 marks to uh, dig up a, a dead one and uh, take it to uh, a certain spot for, you know, whatever. You know, obviously we're thinking it's probably experiments. And Michael Ripper's kind of like, nah, I'm not really, uh, not really thinking this is a good idea, but then, you know, once he hears how much money it is, he's like, hmm, all right, let's try it. And, you know, the scene switches right to the two of them. And <laughs> I like how the one guy, he kind of is like, well, I'm the one that sets everything up and, you know, is getting us paid. So I think I'll just sit here while you do all the work. <laughs> and there's poor Michael Ripper doing all the manual labor. <laughs> I, you know, I did think about when I saw that because the guy's clearly, they're not even alternating. The guy's clearly just sitting there watching poor Ripper do the entire thing. By, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it's crazy. It's just like, wow, man. And then he does make some kind of uh, be actually back in the pub. He made some kind of excuse to Ripper when he was seeming like he wasn't interested. And he was saying, I'm going to go home. He was making all these excuses and like kind of guilt tripping him into coming with by saying, oh, the doctor told me my heart's not doing too good. I shouldn't be doing any kind of work. And Ripper's like, oh, that's nice. I'm going to go home. And then he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to get paid 10 marks for this. And that's what gets Ripper to agree to do it is the money. But uh, we do see that the guy does have a bit of a weak heart, don't we? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you got to really need money, though, to agree to go dig up a grave at night because I maybe I'm soft or delicate, but I just the thought of that would be terrifying <laughs> to be, find yourself in the middle of a, gra a graveyard at night actually digging into the ground. Mm, yeah, that's pretty gross. So <laughs> uh, they dig up a... Uh, casket and they open the casket and michael ripper's character looks in his name is kurt he looks in and he goes it's a priest with no head and he flips out and runs away and of course at that point then you can you know put one and one together and realize like oh they just dug up because i forgot to mention they do say oh this is a the grave of a baron and of course you don't know if it's baron frankenstein or not but then when you hear <laughs> they just dug up a baron's grave and there's a priest body in the casket with no head. You're like, aha, now I know what happened in that previous scene. That was a good setup of Sangster because that really combining these two scenes together is really the first one where they were walking to the guillotine, the mood, the setting, the coloring. It's just a ominous scene to look at, but a very effective scene 
with the immediate follow up to confirm and explain just to make sure he quietly understood. But he chose a scene that, like you said, we would think, oh, are these guys already digging up bodies for Frankenstein? Is this, you know, what's going on here? And so we our minds are going through, you know, what is this scene about? You know, thinking it's something different, and then we get that explanation. I just thought the way Sangster wrote it out was just very effective, quick, easy. You know, setting the whole premise of how Victor's still around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool because, <laughs> again, Ripper then runs away when he sees the headless, you know, priest corpse in the casket, and the other guy, I think his name is Fritz, uh, played by Lionel Jeffries, he goes to run away as well. And then all of a sudden, he stops and he's like you know what? So what? Who cares if it's a priest without a head? I wonder if they'll still give me the 10 marks for this body. And he goes back like he's going to drag the body out. And then all of a sudden you hear this, good evening. <laughs> and he, and they all, Fritz turns around and we see there's our buddy, uh, Peter Cushing as Dr. Victor Stein. Uh, he's standing there and he's like, I am Baron Frankenstein. And our buddy has a heart attack and falls right into the grave and dies right there on the spot. <laughs> we know to be fair even if it, i love peter cushing but if i was in a, in a cemetery at night and turned around and he was like good evening that might be enough to make me drop down on the ground too <laughs> yeah it's a good scene and uh, the guy from the uh guillotine uh, scene carl is his name uh he is there too and that's uh oh let me see here that is oscar and his last name is Q-U-I-T-A-K, Quitak, maybe? Uh, that's uh, Carl here. And uh, he's there with him as well. And the guy, like I say, drops dead. And they're just kind of looking at each other like, oh, well. And they throw him in, I guess, with the, <laughs> the headless priest corpse. And they bury everything up there, which is pretty funny. Although maybe he takes the priest corpse with him or the other corpse. But who knows? Maybe they made off with one of them because, uh, you know, we find out that he's... Uh, Moved a little further away from uh, where he was uh, previously, but he set up shop. And for the last three years, you know, they make mention that uh, he set up shop in a, another town and practicing medicine. And then, you know, of course, we know what he does on the side. <laughs> yeah, because he still has that same determination. He's going to reanimate dead people no matter what it takes. Mm-hmm. He wants to build the perfect, you know, being because obviously he was doing that in the first one and it didn't work out quite the way he wanted it to. So he thinks I know how to do it better this time. So let's let's get to work here. But I do like right out of the way too. you know, pretty early on here, we see this medical council. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I'm not sure if that was something that, you know, existed in the. Uh, you know, that in Europe at the time or not. But it's interesting to see that it's basically this medical council is a bunch of doctors that uh, have gotten together. And it's almost like a secret little club they have where any other doctors that want to move into the area and practice medicine that, you know, you basically need to become part of their little club. And I imagine most people are pretty eager to do that because they seem like very wealthy guys. And, you know, I'm sure they like to party and have a good time. But, you know, we find out probably, you know, right off the bat here, that uh, Dr. Victor Stein, you know, or our alias for Dr. Frankenstein, obviously he doesn't want to go by that name for, you know, for reasons, but, you know, they're basically like, you know, oh, this guy said he did not want to join. So we need to try to stop him from practicing medicine. What did you think of that medical council? I did feel like I was kind of, I mean, like, why is it such a big deal if he doesn't want to be part of your little club? I don't know why they got so dramatic about it, but I also wondered too, how realistic that whole club idea was 
because I got the sense the town he's set up in is not supposed to be a really big town. And there were a lot of guys there. And I'm wondering how many doctors were there in a small town anywhere really in Europe back then? But then I guess maybe they could travel around from larger cities and maybe they, the area might be a pretty large area. I don't know, not just the one he's practicing, but not, you know, not that it really matters. But that was a but I did. I do like that they're in the movie because I think they do help with the payoff later in the film a lot. So um, mm -hmm. it's a weird group to me, but I did. I do. I'm glad they included it. And I think we'll get something out of it later. Yeah, there was probably a dozen guys there, I would think. And the one guy that's standing up and making the biggest fuss, you know, uh, he's going on and on about how, you know, they're they're kind of pissed off that uh, Dr. Stein won't join. And then <laughs> not the president. The president seems like he's kind of a goofball, almost like he's just like a <laughs> yeah. puppet or something. And then there's another guy to like his left that's sitting there smoking and acting like he's really in charge. And he's like, yes, Dr. Stein's stolen half of all my good patients. And then we see, you know, our other uh, doctor here, like we said, Francis Matthews, he's a Dr. Clava. Uh, he's like, he's stolen half of mine as well. And another guy chimes in, mine too, mine too. A bunch of them say mine too. And then the guy that was standing up uh, basically causing all the fuss here says, and mine too. And I like Dr. Claver, Hans Claver says, uh, your wife among them, I heard, right? <laughs> that's a, that's a great that. scene oh, oh man he just can't stop himself yeah your wife among them and he's like well i put a stop to that <laughs> oh i, I, I love it. the implication here that victor is just that amazing a doctor are all of these guys just really suck at it i, I think part of it is uh they put you know they kind of portray uh dr stein as a a bit of a not only a really good doctor but a bit of a ladies man here too like he's better looking than all these other guys <laughs> oh do you think maybe the real reason isn't because do you think maybe he's had, had a relationship with all their wives it might be i'm telling you <laughs> it's odd though because victor at times i mean he had the affair in the previous movie with the the maid mm -hmm. but other times he almost comes off as like asexual like he has no oh. interest in that sort of thing. I guess part of it, he's just so single minded in his, you know, what he his goal with the reanimating tissue that he just once he's on that ain't nothing going to stop him. Yeah, or he, he, I think sometimes, too, maybe he he seems very arrogant that even if he isn't like sleeping with all these women, the fact that they want him to be their doctor and they find him attractive and they're fawning over him, that that feeds his ego. I think that's part of it. Well, yeah, that's a good point because he is all about his ego and and that probably does give him and it power. It's about power. So, yeah, mm -hmm. probably nailed he, it. Yeah, and I do love, too, when it <laughs> we finally see him uh, at his practice, uh, a lady comes in with her daughter, <laughs> an older lady, obviously, that has some money and she wants her daughter to be, you know, basically the implication here is that, uh, you know, all of her money is going to go to her daughter when she marries because I guess her father has passed away. And she's <laughs> trying to say, you know, Dr. Stein, that, you know, there's something wrong with her and you need to help her. And she's basically just trying to, like, throw her daughter at <laughs> Dr. Stein here. And he's not having it because, you know, he is pretty single minded with, uh, you know, his mission of uh, creating this uh, this man. Yeah. And the daughter kind of throws herself, too, because when he's using that whatever centuries old version of a stethoscope type thing that is to hear listen to her heart, yeah. she 
just whines about it being so cold and just really wants him to use his ear instead. <laughs> and I, he does a great eye roll where very subtle, but great eye roll where he puts down the stethoscope and then puts his head against his chest. We could tell he's just like, Oh God, I can't believe I have to do this. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great scene. I really do like that. <laughs> and he doesn't get the chance to do a lot of little humorous moments like that in these films. So it's especially mm-hmm. when he does get that opportunity. Yeah, it's great. I do love to right before that scene, you know, like there's like a camera and it follow you follow it into the waiting room and there's probably 20 women there waiting to get in and see him. So I definitely think it's a it's something to stroke his ego, whether or not he was, you know, sleeping with all those women, even though it's just like, aha, I have a packed uh, you know, thing here. But I think, too, he was also using that to generate, you know, revenue to you know, fund his uh, after work activities. So that was the way he was making money to be able to do that. Yeah. And he, and of course he has the whole section of homeless and, you know, vagrant patients that he uses for, as another resource <laughs> too. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's the next thing we see then too, eventually where there's, you know, like a, I would think it's some kind of hospital, like a, like a, like a free clinic type thing for anybody that's, you know, homeless or whatever, that just doesn't have money or whatever to get, you know, uh, medical attention. And he, he's on one hand, he's giving them medical attention, but on the other hand, we, you know, pretty quickly see here that he's uh, harvesting uh, body parts from these poor guys as well. Yeah, it is interesting because you do several times get indications that he is legitimately treating all these people. And I guess he has to for his cover. And he, and he clearly went about trying to set up not just a reputation in the town, but a really good, like, and he plays off the nobility of helping the poor. That's made clear a few times in the movie. It's one of the things a lot of the women kind of like about him, too. Yeah. But the moment he sees, you know, oh, that guy's got a good arm. I could use that. He just <laughs> does not hesitate to, like, get the chopping block. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is interesting because back to the the medical council. They decide that they're going to go to his uh, practice and confront him about his uh, not wanting to join them. So they send, you know, the president guy who's, you know, like we said, a bit of a sap. And then three of the doctors and one of them being Dr. Claver, uh, Francis Matthews. And they show up and he basically tells them off. But we do see how Dr. Claver kind of, you know, looks at him a bit strangely. And then later that night. Uh, after Dr. Stein's done with his surgery and treating these patients and stuff like that, he's kind of, I think it's almost like in a back room there, just at the, uh, the free clinic, he's going to eat some supper. And if you look in the back corner, you can see there's someone sitting there in the dark in a chair. And this person is Dr. Clara. And he kind of says, uh, Hey, uh, I recognize you. I think I know who you are and calls him out as a, you know, Baron Frankenstein and he uh, is a little coy about it at first but then eventually admits like yeah that's who I am that's a really good scene there don't you think I loved it but he did he took kind of a sharp turn at one point because he did come up with several excuses raise other possibilities and when the guy's like but but are you him and he's finally like yes I am <laughs> it, I kind of was like oh it seems like he could have dragged that out a little more before volunteering but because they become then become when he makes his pitch to be like his new partner or assistant Victor's and as soon as Victor hears his qualifications, he's like, great. And they become like best buds immediately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do like how (laughs) when they're still going back and forth, you know, debating if they're going to have a partnership. He had started to, you know, cut with this large knife part of his dinner 
and he's got it in his hand, uh, Dr. Stein, and he's kind of cleaning the blade, and it's really close to the other doctor. He's like, you know, oh, there's going to be a little uncertainty here because, you know, you figure at any time, you know, he could take off and call the police and say, hey, this is really that Dr. Frankenstein guy, the Baron Frankenstein guy, and he could rat him out. But uh, he, you know, he wants knowledge, and, you know, obviously at this time, in this, you know, universe, if you want to call it that, there probably wasn't any uh, smarter or more cunning, uh, willing to do anything for science, you know, doctor out there than him. So, like, that's why a lot of these younger guys want to learn from him. Yeah, and there's something about Peter Cushing, his image now. There's so much strength to it and what he's known for and seen in these movies so much that you're right. The image of him just sitting there eating with the knives there, little gestures, that in and of itself does give it a very tense feel that a lot of other actors wouldn't have been able to pull off in that scene. Yeah, for sure. And then we do see, uh, like we said, uh, Carl, uh, his uh, one uh, accomplice here, Dr. Stein's one accomplice, the guy that basically got him out of the guillotine. And we find out how he accomplished that. So Carl has like a physical disability. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, does Dr. Stein say that it's because of I'm trying to think of how he explains it. Like he explains it as if he knows why this guy has a disability and this guy was willing to make this deal because he was told by Dr. Stein that he could transplant his brain into a body without a disability. So obviously if you're Carl, you know, again, even in 2022, people with disabilities really, I can't even imagine how it would feel that you feel as if either people are like staring at you all the time or they really are, you know what I mean? And Carl, you, your heart really goes out to him in this movie just simply because you can see, you know, at this point he just wants to, you know, not be stared at or be looked at like, you know, Peter Cushing's character or Francis Matthews character. And you really do feel for his character in this movie. Yeah, and, and he is basically Igor. You know, he's the Igor yes. that we've seen so many different versions of and so many different personalities attached to. I mean, you have Boris Karloff's, you know, evil, you know, version of that character in the Universal films. And then you have, you know, young Frankenstein, you know, you have the hysterical. Mm -hmm. And you have quite a few sympathetic versions out of this. But this really is a character that you do feel immediate sympathy for and you understand. And one aspect I thought was kind of unique to this one that you don't necessarily get with Peter Cushing's Frankenstein and the other films as much. And if you do, usually it goes south pretty quickly at some point. But he, you know, they, they seem to have an affection or, friend, or friendliness with each other. They have a solid relationship. You get the sense that while Frankenstein, obviously his first and foremost goal is to, you know, his project, but he seems he get a vibe. He generally wants to help him too. He thinks this is good mm -hmm. for him. He, I'm giving this guy what he wants. He's helping me. They seem to have kind of a oddly positive relationship for these types of films. Yeah, at least like a mutual respect because you know, hey, we both want something from this deal here. But uh, yeah, so that's uh, we we do see that you know, uh, Doctor Stein already has a uh, a body ready for uh, Carl's brain and. It doesn't take long after he partners up with Dr. Kaleva that uh, they're like, all right, tonight's the night. We're doing it, buddy. We're going to we're going to transplant that brain. And 
of course, Dr. Clay was like, whoa, now, right now, tonight? He's like, his eyes are as big as saucers when they go running down to the lab, which there's a secret lab, you know, not far from the residence here. And that's where they perform their little operation. But, uh, you know, initially it looks like, hey, everything's going to be great. But, you know, we do see, you know, a couple of signs, you know, fairly early on here that, you know, it looks like the operation was successful, but there's something you can see is not going to go right here. It's going to it's going to go downhill pretty fast. Well, yeah, of course, like it always mm-hmm. does. But, you know, I, I found it interesting that when you they you do see some problems, though, at first it really does seem like, all right, he just had major surgery. You could easily dismiss all this stuff as the brain adjusting to the body, just like an organ transplant. That's a concern after the surgery. Is it going to accept the organ? Mm-hmm. So, it's very subtle kind of build at the beginning, and you could read it as actually, oh, this seemed to be really successful, and he's just going through the normal adjustments. So it did, I think it kind of could be a little misleading to you as to how quickly things are going to go south. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we did get introduced as well to uh, Eunice Gason's character, uh, Miss Conrad here. She, uh, you know, her father, I guess, is like the minister of health, so he <laughs> gets her a job. And she's going to be working at uh, the uh, free clinic where, you know, uh, Dr. Stein and Dr. Clava now work. So she is going to be there. And I love when she first comes there and says to uh, Dr. Clava, she's like, yes, I'll buy things for them. I'll get them, you know, uh, tobacco and writing paper and soap. And he, his first thing is kind of a chuckle. And he's just like, they never or they hardly ever write and they never wash. And she kind of <laughs> looks at him like gross <laughs> i do like that i'm curious what you think of her character as they move along and i'm gonna save it but if there is one aspect of the film i think that does does fall a little short it's in regard to her character in the storyline but i'll we'll get back to that later after we've we've finished the movie mm-hmm. yeah she doesn't get developed very well that's for sure yeah and we can get into that later but yeah she comes in you know margaret conrad and like i said you know she's going to help out and this and that and <laughs> one of the other characters too i forgot to mention is uh the guy that's the uh like janitor uh at the uh at the free clinic that character is pretty funny too and that's uh richard wordsworth uh and he's just walking around sweeping up all the time but he's always got a little quip and something funny to say, you know, to the uh, patients and stuff like that. And then he kind of just he seems like one of those guys where, you know, they pay him to do, you know, I don't know, whatever you want to say, eight hours of work a day. And he probably actually works about two hours a day. <laughs> and the rest of the time, he's just goofing off and getting paid. <laughs> I really like his character. And he's one of those that I kind of wonder. Did they maybe expand this part a little once they actually saw him doing the work as opposed to or maybe was he maybe a one off or one scene guy? And after a few days, they were like, hey, we should give him some more stuff to do because he just kind of pops in it out. Like you said, his comic relief, but he, he does a great job in the part. He does. He's really good. He's he's really, really good. And he uh, you know, he's always kind of nosing around. And after, you know, Carl's brain is transplanted into the new body, you know, they can't leave him at the lab so they kind of slyly try to transport him to like a room like an attic room at the free clinic but you know our buddy here the janitor he uh he sees them doing this and he hears the the patient you know screaming out and he's like what's going on here but of course he just packs that into the back of his brain for later use 
Well, he, you know, he's not going to go looking for trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like that part because, you know, again, it is, you know, later on that we do see it comes back to, uh, you know, uh, be a, an integral part here as uh, he starts to kind of, I don't know, make up, make conversation and maybe kind of hitting on uh, uh, Miss Conrad as well. I kind of feel like maybe <laughs> and she's yeah. obviously not having much of that with him. <laughs> no, but yeah, he was definitely interested. <laughs> Yeah, and then he kind of makes mention of because he wants to feel important, so he kind of mentions how he knows what goes on here and this and that. And she's like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "Oh, they have a special patient, and he's in a room all by himself, and he's all strapped down." And she's like, "You're crazy!" And he's like, "Oh, I'll show you." And he knows where they hide the master key, and he takes her up to the room as if he's going to show her who this guy is. But he hands her the key, and then he walks away. And at that point, she kind of looks at him walking away. And then looks at the door like, hey, what if this guy's on the level and there's somebody in here that's like dangerous? You know, she almost like hesitates for a minute before going into the room. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's a nice touch to have him walk away and leave her with the key because it kind of gets rid of any fear she has that he's up to something. Mm -hmm. like, or she can't raise that kind of curiosity in a woman's head and not expect her to like go in the door once she knows she's at least that he's not a threat to her. Yeah, so she goes in to see Carl in his new body here, and he says, oh, Miss Conrad, and she's like, oh, do, like, do I know you? And he's like, yeah, I met you once, but you wouldn't remember. And, you know, she's kind of like, oh, are you okay, and this and that. But, you know, at one point, he kind of says, he, he's thinking to himself, he wants to get out of there. Um, he did have a conversation previously with Dr. Clava, and you know, the doctor kind of said to him, like, hey, you know, you're going to be a really important guy. You know, we're going to have, you know, doctors from all over the place come and see you and see your old body and see what a medical miracle this is on how you don't, you don't you're not disabled anymore. And your brain was able to be put into this body. And I, I just oh, my heart went out to him because he like gets real emotional. He's just like, I've been stared at my whole life. I just, you know, he just kind of wants to just be left alone and just blend into the crowd like everybody else. And when he hears that's not uh, what uh, Dr. Stein has planned for him, you know, you can see his brain cooking like, I, I got to get out of here. So when uh, uh, Miss Conrad there comes to visit him, he kind of gets a little bit of a an idea in his head and says, oh, these straps are really tight. And she goes, oh, they are really tight. And she loosens them. And then uh, that's how he ends up getting out of there and uh, getting out of the place. Uh, unseen for a while this whole scene to me is really like probably the biggest one of the whole film because it you know in addition to showing that he discovered you know for the plot that he discovers victor's plans and all it mm -hmm. really sets in your mind how different this film is from the previous one because you know in that one the, the monster was a very different creature you know he was grotesque in appearance you know he wasn't articulate he was more of traditionally what you think of as frankenstein um, and that was a violent film, too. He definitely was a, a violent creature at times. Mm -hmm. And you knew this was going to be a more human-looking one. We'd already seen the body. We'd already seen him wake up from the surgery. But this is the first time we really hear him talking like a normal person. And we see him, because you never know after the surgery, are they immediately going to become a monster? Is it going to be, is it really going to be his mind? This is the one where we see, no, he actually is very articulate. And he remembers who he is. You know, clearly Victor has learned a lot and progressed between the two movies over the years and doing this because in the previous one, you didn't get the sense that a mind really connected entirely with the body, you know, again, cause they can't talk, they grumble, mm -hmm. growl, but, 
but here he's done it in a way that this this is him this is the same guy in just a different body so again we'd already seen physically it was going to be again better than the previous one in appearance but this is the scene where you really realize oh this is a totally different approach from the previous film yeah, Dr. Stein's uh, Frankenstein, whatever you want to call him, his uh, cosmetic surgery skills have gotten a lot better since the first film. Yeah. You know, it's it's definitely, uh, you know, he's able to, uh, you know, put a brain into a body that looks, you know, perfect, you know, not a, a scratch on it, really. Other than the, the scars, of course, from the brain transplant, but the rest of the, you know, the body looks, you know, perfect and excellent shape. But um, yeah, so, we, you know, Carl escapes and at this point, if you haven't seen a movie poster or, you know, read anything like, you know, pre-internet age, you're probably thinking to yourself at this point, well, where's the monster? You know what I mean? Like, this is, you know, Carl, he's like, fine. Everything's cool with him. Like, wh who's the monster? Where's the monster? I, I kind of imagine you were probably really thinking like, this is really weird, especially compared to the first one, right? Yeah, and I, I think it was a great device for them to to introduce us to him post-surgery through her eyes to have her be the one that that opens the scene and her portrayal of him being sympathetic to him concerned because it softens the character immediately in her eyes we know he's not a threat to her which in any other movie the monster immediately would you know warriors are they going to rip this person apart but here we have this beautiful woman who comes in he's fine he's not a threat to her she feels sorry for him the whole dynamic is so different that you're right yeah it's like what the heck this is there going to be another monster in this movie or is, but again <laughs> one in the story becomes it's such a such a sadder tone to the rest of the film than what we had in the previous one that it does it again changes the whole mood going forward absolutely yeah so basically you know carl he wants after you know hearing what the doctor said about oh we're gonna show you and your old body and you know show everybody how great things are now uh, you know he he doesn't want anything to do with that body anymore so he goes to the lab where they did the brain transplant and the body's still laying there on a table so he opens the old you know furnace and chucks the body <laughs> into it which i thought was pretty wild but you know there's a uh you know, uh, like a night watchman slash janitor type guy at that building as well. And he hears something going on down there and he says, you know, confronts uh, Carl about it. And, you know, Carl at this point, you know, he's in a, you know, I don't want to say big, but in a pretty big, decent size, you know, healthy, you know, strong body now. But still, you know, his brain is that of, you know, when he was disabled. So this guy kind of comes after him, hits him over the back with a, a stool and, starts beating up on him and at this point you know the story kind of takes a little bit of a turn where you know carl's character then you know i don't know if the right way to say it is becomes the monster but from some of this trauma from getting you know beat by this guy and hit with a stool and all this stuff it kind of traumatizes him to where he starts to kind of go off the rails yeah i did think it was a very nice touch to have at the beginning carl not even think of fighting back he, like you said his his previous body, his health issues, his demeanor, he's not that kind of guy. So here, even mm -hmm. in this or much stronger body, he immediately cowers. You know, he begs. He it doesn't even occur to him that he could possibly like protect himself, much less fight back. But yeah, that moment where something snaps in his head where it suddenly dawns on him and he sort of transforms. And it's not even I mean, he does lash out in a way that's kind of monstrous. 
but it's not even so much that he becomes necessarily a monster as he just becomes, you know, this body, this new strong body. And that in his facial expression is one. The actor does a great job during that sort of transformation scene. Yeah, that's great. And he chokes the living crap out of <laughs> the George Woodbridge's character and chokes him to death and then just leaves. But, you know, like then eventually <laughs> Dr. Stein and Dr. Kleva uh, get to the uh, attic room and see that he's gone. And they're like, oh, no, where would he go? And, you know, they go rushing over to the lab. But obviously it's you know too late. And they see the dead uh, night watchman there and they're like, "Uh oh, they know the crap <laughs> is really getting ready to hit the fan. Yeah, you know, you think how many times is Victor going to have his one of the experiments end in a murder before he's <laughs> head that, you know, maybe I, I should stop doing this. Yeah. And the whole time, you know, every once in a while we get the the medical council kind of scheming and trying to figure out what's going on here. And, you know, they're, they're always kind of behind the scenes lurking because they want to put him out of business, you know, Dr. Stein. So they're going to get their chance really soon, you know, really quick here. So. Um, the movie kind of moves real quick here after this, uh, you know, Carl, he, uh, knew where, uh, Margaret Conrad lives. She had put her address down on a piece of paper and said, Hey, you know, when you get out of here, come see me and I can help you find some work. So he goes and he hangs out and uh, hides out, I guess, basically in, uh, the stables at uh, her home or her aunt's home where she lives. I think it might be, but <laughs> so she goes out there and sees him and he's like, you know, oh, please don't tell Dr. Stein. And she can see that he's scared to death of him. So she goes back to the clinic and gets Dr. Clava and says, hey, he's out there. We need to help him. They go there. He's gone. But while they were away, you start to see him revert to having those same physical disabilities that he did when he was in his other body. So he starts to really get like despondent and upset. And, you know, that's basically how, you know, they use this to basically drive him off the deep end here and, and turn him into, you know, more of a monstrous type killer. Yeah, that was an incredibly sad and disturbing scene to watch. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm just I know there's no grounding in science for any of this stuff, but the implication I read it is almost that this is how he still in his heart sees himself. Mm -hmm. He was hopeful when he woke up to the surgery. He thought he was going to be reborn, this new body. But then between going through and finding out what Victor went through and then lashing out, having the fight with the um, guy in the lab and, and killing him, I think now he realizes, oh, I'm still this monster. And he immediately starts to physically revert to the deformities that he had previously. And, of course, that's when basically you just – I mean, you know these films are never going to end but well, but for the people involved, particularly the monster, but – that's when you really kind of feel in your heart you're giving up hope. You're like, oh, this that's we turned the corner now where we just know this is going to go down a dark direction for poor Carl. Yeah. And it's just yeah, your heart goes out to him because he he's just he got kind of, you know, tangled up in this, you know, shenanigans with Dr. Stein, a.k.a. Frankenstein, just because he wanted to, you know, not not feel the way he does you know, about everybody always staring at him and having physical disability and stuff like that. You know, your heart really goes out to the guy. So this, like I said, this movie is such a departure from the first one in a lot of ways. You know, it still has a lot of the same elements, you know, but it's it, it really is a huge departure because it really there's nothing really tugging on your heartstrings in the first movie, you know, but there yeah. really, really is in this one. 
Yeah, the it's interesting because earlier I mentioned how the relationship between him and Frankenstein kind of came off more positively. But now that I think about it and re relooking at Carl's digression, you do kind of look back and wonder, well, given how manipulative and egotistical Victor is, he probably manipulated this poor crippled guy and put all these ideas in his head of how wonderful it could be. And and but with the different power dynamic of him being this, you know, powerful physician, you know, and Carl just could have been a higher hand. You got to think that that Victor just twisted his mind into being enthusiastic about this, because that's exactly the type of thing Victor would do. <laughs> so, yeah. So we get to the scene where <laughs> there are these two. I wouldn't say they're teenagers, but I would say maybe early 20s. Uh, a guy and a lady and they're in a park and we see them sitting there and you can tell very quickly that, you know, uh, the young lady is with this guy. Cause she's just like, Hey dude, you know, I, you know, I want a little action here. And he is as thick as uh, concrete and has no idea what this girl <laughs> is all about. And he's more interested in talking about the ants that are crawling around on the ground. And she's just like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, ants are interesting. They're pretty cool. And she's just like, <laughs> Yeah, well, they they're yes, they are pretty cool. They know when to stop talking and when to, you know, you know, get it on. And he's just like, What are you talking about? Get what on? And she's just like, I'm going home. And she walks away from him. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's crazy. And he's like, uh, good night. But you know, she goes around the corner and here is Carl, who has, you know, you know, almost like a, a switch that was flipped, is very much like, you know, drooling, snarling, kind of he's kind of you know, almost like changing into a werewolf, like, you know, that kind of turning into a monster instead of, you know, the nice guy, Carl, that we all knew. Yeah, he really pulls it off with his facial contortions and the sweat and mm -hmm. all more than just getting back the physical deformities he had before. He really does look like he's physically and I don't really think they put like prosthetics on him and stuff like that. But just with his face and the makeup and the and the drooling and sweat, he really does pull off the, a very bestial appearance at this point in the film. Yeah, and he basically kills this girl, and as she's, you know, he's killing her, she kind of screams and cries out, and this guy comes running, and he sees, you know, uh, Carl kind of, like, lurching over her, and then he runs away, and then the next thing you know, we see, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, Stein and Dr. Clava, they're heading out to see if they can find him, and they get stopped by the police because they're like, oh, there's been a murder in the park. And, of course, the two of them look at each other like, uh-oh, something's, <laughs> you know, this this is not a coincidence here. And, uh, you know, they kind of check things out and think, yo, we're in big trouble. So they end up going to uh, the aunt's house. And then at this point, it's why I realized, oh, the aunt, I think, is that same woman that had her her daughter at the uh, clinic earlier. And that was like, oh, please put your... Uh, ear on our chest or at least maybe <laughs> or, or or if she's not the aunt she's a friend of the aunts because she's at this party and she's like oh dr stein i'm glad you made the party you know like because she invited him to it and then the next thing you know smash you know you hear this loud crashing noise and this glass smashing and here's our buddy carl and he looks over and he sees dr stein and he calls out to him in front of this room full of people and says frankenstein frankenstein help me and, of course, all the people are looking around like, what? Because, again, that whole controversy was just three years previous. So that would still be pretty fresh in people's minds. Yeah, and this is another approach this film takes that's very different than what you would see in other films, too. Because this isn't about him, like, violently getting revenge on Victor or trying to go hunt him down and kill him. 
Mm-hmm. It's just about basically going for help. And the and the implication of Victor is he's publicly humiliated. He's not, you know, physically injured in any way like you would sort of expect in the others. Here it's about the reputation being damaged, the public perception of him changing. And of course, down then you'll think about the fear of him going back to prison or being executed. But that's not again what you'd see in the other ones. There you'd be worried about is the monster going to come in and just start ripping his arms off? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Totally different set of circumstances with this one here. And and again, back to the medical council, I think one of them was in the room. So, of course, they start conspiring and saying, hey, you know, uh, this guy, you know, I think his real name's Frankenstein. It could be that guy. And they question, they, you know, they, I don't know if he, he willingly comes in, but they kind of bring him into their little powwow, Dr. Stein, that question him. And he does say like, oh, yes, my name is uh, Frankenstein, but for obvious reasons, I changed it. So people didn't think I was that guy. You know, there are people with the last name Frankenstein all over Europe. And so he kind of like weasels his way out of it a little bit. And then they uh, question uh, the other doctor as well. But we don't really see anything that has anything to do with that because it's just uh, kind of a throwaway thing. It's not a big deal Um, because at that point, he's not going to crack or anything like that. He's he's all he's into his. He's into it deep already, up to his neck. So he wasn't going to squeal because he knew he'd be in, implicated in some big trouble, too. Yeah, his relationship with Victor is much different than his lab partner in the previous film, who, you know, who went from being good friends, but then slowly realized that Victor was losing his mind and what they were doing was wrong. Mm-hmm. Here, Han seems on board the whole time and doesn't <laughs> have any hesitation. And even as things start to go downhill and they risk being exposed, he still doesn't seem to have any regret or any worries about Victor going too far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that theme will continue into the next film as well. But then after that one, it'll flip back again to (laughs) something like very different, almost a polar opposite there. But yeah. So basically now from here, uh, the, the, the air quotes monster kind of uh, takes a back seat here. And then it's all about Dr. Stein and, Word gets back to all the patients at the free clinic about who he really is. And, you know, obviously some of those people probably aren't the most educated people in the world, but I'm sure they've read a newspaper and heard from, you know, sources that, hey, there was this Dr. Frankenstein guy that was cutting people up to make bodies, you know. So they know what's going on, obviously. He was at, you know, the free clinic. Oh, I'm going to have to take your arm off and your legs off and. They're not stupid. They figure out what he's been doing at this free clinic while he might be treating some of the people, some of the other people he's been using as guinea pigs, basically. And that scene does not end well. So what did you think of that scene? That comes on very suddenly and it's effective. And some mob violence certainly isn't or mob justice isn't a stranger to Frankenstein stories by any means. Mm-hmm. But it, it was it fascinating to me how he walks in and clearly they're all suspicious and believe he's the Victor Frankenstein who was trying to, you know, bring back the dead. But we're within like 30 seconds, they're literally just pummeling him to death. <laughs> and it's just, mm-hmm. kind of, oh, there's no, that, that escalated very quickly. <laughs> yeah. And while that's happening, the medical council goes and digs up Baron Frankenstein's grave and sees at least a headless priest and possibly that other guy that had a heart attack as well. So they know he's not in there. So they're like, let's go right to the cops because this will put him out of business. And then the police show up. And they say to, you know, Dr. Clava, like, hey, we have a warrant for Dr. Frankenstein's arrest. And he's like, "Uh, "Okay, come on in. And he shows them the body and says that, you know, the people at the clinic, you know, went crazy and killed him. 
And they're just like, all right, well, we're going to have to take the body at some point here and bury him in unhallowed ground. <laughs> but in a previous scene, we did see, and that's why I kind of said, uh, you know, Dr. Stein's uh, cosmetic surgery, you know, plastic surgery skills were top notch. Uh, he did reveal to Dr. Clava earlier in the film that he had been working on a replacement body for himself that looks exactly like him. <laughs> so we do get Dr. Clava here that says, you know, like, hey, I've seen him do uh, <clears throat> a brain swap. So here we go. And uh, he uh, does take the brain out and put it into this new body and gets it to work. And, you know, we end on the film with uh, instead of a uh, Dr. Uh, Stein, <laughs> we end up with him in another town, and uh, he's calling himself Dr. Frank now. <laughs> so what did you think of that swerve at the end there? Well, my best part and favorite part about that is this time he's a little safer because not only did he change his name, but he grew a mustache, which we all know is one of the perfect disguises you can come up with. And I even love that when he opens the door and you see his – because you, you can tell it's him in that final scene with Hans, mm -hmm. but you don't get a really great look at his face. But when he goes to greet one of his new patients, who of course a woman, he opens the door and steps out, and you get, and he does a little mustache twirl with kind of a, you know, a little <laughs> glimmer uh, in his eye in that scene. And I thought that's just a perfect ending to this film. And you just know, and at this time, of course, they don't have to worry about setting up, you know, how is Victor still with us in the next one? Mm -hmm. And then he, don't forget, and not only does he have a mustache now, but he also has a monocle, so you'll never <laughs> recognize him now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was perfect. You, I mean, going for the Monopoly guy look is always a good approach when you need to hide. <laughs> yeah, I love how, like, uh, you know, on an iPhone, there's an emoji, too, with a little guy with a <laughs> monocle, too. <laughs> I think I saw that. Every time I think I see that emoji, I think there's Dr. Frank. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, this is crazy. But my thought is, is, okay, so what happened to Carl? I don't, I don't know what happened to Carl. What happened yeah. to him? That's a good question. You almost forget about that until you stop and think. Um, it wasn't like he was on his deathbed or anything. I mean, maybe, you know, his, you know, you know, brain. You know, I, I don't know. But they, they they never even allude to anything about what happened with him. The last time we see him is when he's like, Frankenstein, help me, Frankenstein. And that's it. We don't see him again for the rest of the movie. I mean, presumably he walked into that house with all the party guests there, you know, men and women. I think I, I would assume someone took him into custody because he, did, he didn't seem like he was in the mood to start fighting anyone. No. Yeah. He like basically collapsed. Yeah. And I think it'd be pretty it wouldn't be hard for everyone to figure out that this may be related to those, you know, victims bodies we found. So mm -hmm. I would think, sadly, poor Carl may have ended up in jail or or, so, or maybe they send him off to some criminally insane the yeah, institution or something yeah yeah poor carl yeah he's it's really the him that tragic figure that to me is you know i feel like that supplanted you know dr frankenstein's you know madness as the driving force behind this this movie for me and it was really really sad you know the more i think about it the more sad i get yeah i think that the, the different dynamic of this is one of the reasons that when i was younger and i first saw the picture I, I wasn't a huge fan. I mean, I was enjoyed it worth seeing it, but I think because I was expecting more of the traditional monster movie. And in the previous film, yes, these movies are more centered generally around Victor and about him. But in the previous one, you did have closer to a traditional monster film with the, you know, mm -hmm. Christopher Lee's version of the monster. 
But here, from the very from that scene where Margaret first meets him, you have a very sympathetic version. Like I said, he's really articulate. You know, you really he's probably been tricked into this by Victor, and you know he's never like on a rant. I mean, yes, he does kill people, of course, but it doesn't it doesn't take away from that sympathy towards the character. And yeah, instead of having being more of a horror film, this is more of a kind of a sad drama a lot of the time with um, horror elements sort of sprinkled throughout. Yeah. Oh, totally agree. Totally agree on that one. But yeah, man. So uh, what do you think overall? Final final thoughts on this one. What do you think? You know, what 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 do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. I mean, what what did you think of this one? Oh, certainly up. And and now at this point, I would put it in definitely one of the top two slots probably on these films. Um, mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah, this is a good one. I do like how it, it had some you know familiarity with the first film, but then uh, a few different departures as well. And you know, you and I talked a little bit you know about this uh, before we started recording too. You know, and you had some thoughts about this one. You know, seeing it. At one point in your life and seeing it another one, you made some good points there. So what about that? Well, yeah, like I mentioned a moment ago, I think as a kid, you you know, who's seen the other one is more of a monster film. And I was expecting that going in. So I think it, it didn't measure it since it was so different what I expect. And when you're younger, you're looking for more of the sort of monster and the action and stuff. Whereas going revisiting it later and getting more connected to Carl's character, changing my perspective on the film when I revisited and I realized, you know, no, this is a deeper storyline than we had previously. The other one was more about Victor's descent into madness and you had sympathetic characters and his, you know, his partner who slowly sort of turned on Victor when he realized what he did, the love interest. But here they were not the center of the film. Victor remained the center of the film at all times. Whereas here, like you said, Carl becomes the center of the film at one point. And it's probably partially why we don't get, as mad a victor as we got in the previous films, because it he does take said second stage behind Carl in this one. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Completely agree with you on that. So, all right. Well, so yeah, this is a, this is a, I don't want to say this is the anomaly in the series of them because there's <laughs> uh, another one coming up that we're going to do not the third one, but the fourth entry that really takes an interesting swerve. Uh, uh, with a a, a lady, <laughs> so I can't wait to talk about that one. But the next one is interesting too. The next one kind of um, it goes back towards more of its roots from the first film, but has some interesting qualities about it as well that you didn't see in the first film or this one. So uh, looking forward to that one. That's uh, the evil of Frankenstein, and they waited six years to make another Frankenstein film. I'm not sure why they did that, so I'll have to do a little research. Maybe we can talk about that in the next one, but. So uh, definitely uh, happy to have you here, man, and talk about another one of these good Hammer films. So uh, uh, why don't uh, you let me know and the people out there, if they're looking to follow you and figure out what you've got going on, uh, why don't you let them know uh, where they can find you? Well, uh, my podcast, which is you know few and far between nowadays, but still ongoing, I, um, is Comics in the Golden Age. I think you can tell from the title what it's probably about. <laughs> um, I do remain very active on Twitter. The handle there is comics in the GA. I recently also opened a um, Instagram account where if you just look up comics in the golden age, you should be able to find me there. The podcast is available on, you know, iTunes, all the standard, you know, podcasts, you know, plain 
sorry, all the standard podcast sites. So um, mm-hmm. you should be easy to find. And feel free to, if you're on Twitter, give me a follow. And Instagram, same thing. And check out the podcast. Yeah, and I, you know, you and I have been following each other for a long time. And your account is Comics in the Golden Age, but we're all over the place. You could be, we could be talking about comics <laughs> one minute, talking about, you know, Planet of the Apes the next minute. <laughs> we oh we have God. a good time on there. We didn't even mention the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Otto the Chimp. Yes. A, how did we forget to mention the monkey? Yep. The monkeys those. always make things better in film. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And this one it was talks. wild, too. Yeah. <laughs> I love how at one scene he was, you know, in this cage and he's banging on the cage and going crazy and he bit the the night watchman there when he came over to him yeah you gotta always get a, a mention for the uh the monkey in the movie for sure it wasn't poor Otto one of the experiments at the end of the day too yep he did talk about transplanting his brain too or this or that and i thought man what this guy just he can't get a it's just always about the brain even if it's a monkey it's a man it's a woman it's oh boy Oh, and I'm flashing back to the scene where um, Victor explains to Hans that after the surgery, he ate his the, Otto or whoever he is now, ate his wife. Oh, yeah, that's Hans a good one. Like, what? He looks so freaked out for a moment. But Victor's just like, anyways, you know, like, it happens. <laughs> yeah. He... Cold personality comes back as always where he's just like, oh, and he ate his wife. So what are we having for dinner? Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Claver's like, what? He's like, yeah. Like, no, no big deal. Come on, let's get on with our experiment here. It's like, that's insane. <laughs> Sorry, when you mentioned Planet of the Apes, I was just like, the monkey. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I can't believe that. I'll have to find a good still from the movie and, you know, put that up there when we <laughs> talk about this one when it comes out. But, uh, well, You're right. thanks. On all of our Twitter accounts, we do each have a theme, but we're really bad at sticking to it a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, we are. We just, uh, we're all over the place. And that's okay, too, because no matter where we're at, we're having fun on there. So, yeah, definitely give Mike a, a follow on there and basically join the craziness on Twitter. So, well, thanks for joining me again, Mike. I appreciate this, man, uh, taking this journey with me through these uh, Frankenstein films. It's been a blast so far. But, yeah, we've got a, a few more to go here. Like I said, Evil of Frankenstein up next. And uh, I'm going to do a little bit more homework on that one, kind of see why they waited six years to put it out, maybe why they swerved back towards, like, having a legit, you know, monster. Uh, I'm going to have to really uh, do my homework on that one because I don't know why they did that, and I want to know why. I guess that explains why a different actor ended up playing Hans because it's it is a different actor in that one, right? Yep, it absolutely is. It's 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 kind of like a same thing though, where it's like, oh, I've been you know with you for knowledge and you know your assistant, and they kind of act as if it's the same guy. I think the name might be different, as I know the actor is for sure. But uh, yeah, he's a he's a it's a good one. That's a really crazy one that has one of my favorite, uh, you know, like uh, supporting characters in that one as well. Um, uh, Peter Woodthorpe. I like that guy. He's crazy. He plays like a crazy hypnotist in that movie. So I'm really looking forward to that one. I like that guy. He's nuts. Yeah. And I think we go back to getting a bit more of a volatile Victor again in that one, don't we? Oh yeah. And he goes back to the, you know, original town where everything happened in the first movie and oh yeah. Craziness. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong there? Right. I mean, it's not like he was thrown out of there and like chased out of there. Like they're going to, you know, try to kill him and behead him but it reminds me earlier when you saw he they stumble upon the bodies of the park and i'm thinking victor you really shouldn't be surprised at this point anytime you <laughs> look back at that monster you know it's going to mean 
you're going to walk and find a dead body like 10 minutes later. It, this is just how this works. <laughs> yep. Trail of bodies everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, like I said, thank you, Mike. I appreciate this, buddy. And uh, I'm going to let you go now and then play a promo and be back to wrap things up in a minute. All right. Thanks, Billy. Take care. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Robert Osborne. If you really believe the slightly mad Dr. Frankenstein was about to be executed at the finish of our last film, then you just don't understand the movie business. I mean, when somebody dies in a movie and that movie makes a fortune, you can bet somebody's going to come up with a miracle resurrection of some kind to keep the franchise going. And Hammer Films did that with Frankenstein, always finding new ways to keep Mary Shelley's monster stumbling along again and again. Six more times, in fact. And up next, we have the first of those sequels. It's called The Revenge of Frankenstein, with Peter Cushing again playing Baron Victor von Frankenstein. Although this time out, and for reasons you'll soon learn, he goes by the name of Victor Stein. Otherwise, little has changed. He's attempting to create a living thing by stitching together pieces of the dead, this time doing so while also posing as a doctor at a charity hospital. And once again, the doctor does succeed with his experiment, only to have everything that follows go terribly, terribly wrong. And we watch it all in glorious, garish Technicolor. And do keep in mind what a groundbreaking thing it was for the Hammer Film Organization to use Technicolor in a horror film. Most such stories were traditionally filmed in black and white. All the universal horror films were done in black and white, with the exception of two of theirs, their 1943 version of The Phantom of the Opera with Claude Rains, and 1944's The Climax with Boris Karloff. But the people at Hammer believe their use of Technicolor is what elevated the status of their films in the minds of most moviegoers. In effect, legitimizing them and making them seem several leagues above the normal B-budget drive-in fare. Whether it was the Technicolor or the subject matter or both, moviegoers did pack in to see these films, making them profitable enough to justify the added expense of that color photography. So here, from 1958, The Revenge of Frankenstein. Okay, everybody, that's going to wrap up this episode. Once again, I want to thank Mike, uh, you know, from Comics of the Golden Age uh, for being here and talking uh, with me about these movies. Really looking forward to these next uh, three, actually, uh, hopefully with Mike, too, uh, to uh, talk about these Hammer Frankenstein uh, franchise films. The next three are really, really interesting. You know, they each bring something uh, different to it. But for right now, going to keep rolling on with Hammer, but sporadically I'm going to throw in... Uh, a couple, you know, uh, different movies that I had uh, recorded with some friends, you know, some new guests uh, that are non-Hammers, but still a huge, huge focus on Hammer going forward from now until probably, you know, the end of the year, the holidays, and then uh, uh, sprinkled in some other things, like I said, a couple of television movies, you know, made-for-TV movies there around Halloween probably with some guests, and then, uh, again, strong focus on Hammer between now and the end of the year, and then We'll see what's going to happen for 2023. You know, you never know. I might uh, try something completely different going forward with some movies. Or, you know, uh, maybe I'll even go uh, just movie-centric. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But for right now, you know, enjoy the hammer and uh, the oddballs in between. As always, thanks for listening, everybody. See ya.